0: I don't know whether any of you remember what I preached on when I was here last August covering for Glenn's holidays. I had four Sunday sermons, and I worked my way through a book. Some of you may recall uh, what the book was, but it was nicely sparked by the fact that instead of flying the Isle of Man, I was taking the ferry last year, and that made me think of the book of Jonah. Uh, because of the nautical connections. And so uh, last year in August, I, I preached uh, through the book of Jonah. And Jonah, of course, is regarded as what they call one of the minor prophets. Now, it doesn't mean that his message was less significant than other prophets of the Old Testament. The minor prophets are simply designated as such because of the shortness of the books in the Old Testament. So it's on that basis, having only four chapters, Jonah is a uh, minor prophet. But you may not recall also that I was with you earlier in the year, last year. I was invited over for a Sunday in March of 2018. And on that Sunday, both morning and evening, I actually preached uh, from Isaiah. And Isaiah is certainly not a minor prophet. He is very much a major prophet. Uh, Probably in today's terminology, he would be regarded as a mega prophet because unlike the four chapters of Jonah, there are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. Jonah uh, preached and ministered to the northern kingdom of uh, the nation of Israel Although he's probably best remembered for what he did outside of the kingdom of Israel when he eventually, despite his rebellion, ended up in Nineveh. And of course he preached there and there was a great revival uh, which really didn't please Jonah very well as we learned last year. So he was a, a prophet to the northern kingdom whereas Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah uh, comprising of just Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Uh, perhaps over the years you've, uh, gathered that I have, uh, a rather great liking for an American pastor called John MacArthur. And, uh, John MacArthur and his church are celebrating something very special this year. Because this actually marks the 50th year of John MacArthur's ministry at Grace Community Church on the outskirts of Los Angeles. And there's not too many ministers, I would think, in this day and age who would be in one church for 50 years. So they are celebrating it, uh, and I think quite rightly so. Tremendous achievement for a man to preach and minister God's Word for 50 years. But when it comes to Isaiah, uh, it is believed that he actually ministered for a total of 58 years from 739 BC through to 681 BC. And you would think that having ministered for such a length of time that at the end of his life he would have a nice quiet time and just gradually fade peaceably from the scene. But unfortunately that is not exactly what happened to him at all. Because in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, that chapter that uh, sets out uh, details of so many of the great heroes of faith uh, of the Old Testament, uh, it refers specifically in many areas to the Old Testament prophets. And towards the end of chapter 11, we read this in verses 36 and 37. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment, they were stoned, they were sawn asunder. Sawn asunder. And most commentators believe that this is, in fact, a reference to Isaiah. They believe that, unfortunately, after 58 years of faithful ministry, he, in fact, was put to death by Uh, A king who became king at a young age, King Manasseh. And it is believed that that is how he died. John MacArthur comments, according to tradition, this was the method that Manasseh employed to execute Isaiah. And what it says according to tradition in the second century writings of Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, he makes reference to the fact that this is the, the method that uh, was employed uh, by Manasseh to execute Isaiah. So, as I say, I'll be looking at these few verses from the book of Isaiah. Uh, Some others in recent days, Ray, may have gathered that I have a liking for the game of cricket. Uh, And during the week, I was very excited because I don't know if you follow cricket or not, but there was the first test match ever between England and Ireland. And England were bowled out before lunch on the first day for 80-something And Ireland then went on to bat and secured a a first innings lead of, I think, about 120. So things were looking good for Ireland. Uh, But then England came in in the third innings and they uh, were able to knock off the deficit. And in fact, they set Ireland a target, I think, of 181 runs to win the match. And so it was with great expectancy that I turned the radio on uh, the other morning as Ireland were about to begin their second innings to try and Get this total of 181. Well, I don't know if you've heard on the news or read online or whatever. It was a bit of a disaster for Ireland because they were bowled out for 38. Uh, the lowest ever test score at Lord's. So, you know, one minute you're up and the next minute you're down. But anyhow, what I'm getting to in relation to cricket is that there is a very important Action that takes place before the actual game starts. And that is when the two captains go out into the middle and one of the umpires flips a coin in the air and one of the captains calls either heads or tails. And whoever wins the toss has the option of either batting first or bowling first. And uh, depending on the pitch conditions, it is a very important thing if you win the toss. It definitely gives you distinct advantage if you use the winning of the toss wisely. But what I want to point to is that when they flip the coin, as the saying goes, there are two sides to every coin. One is heads and one is tails. And I think when it comes to the ministry of the prophet Isaiah, there are two sides to the prophetic ministry of that man. On the one side, there is what I would see written confronting. And then on the other side, there's what I would see comforting. So in his ministry, Isaiah was a man who on the one hand confronted, and yet on the other hand, he comforted. If I come to uh, confronting, uh, he didn't hold back when it came to setting out his view of the state of the nation of Israel, uh, the the southern kingdom where he was in fact ministering on behalf of God. In the first chapter of the book of Isaiah, uh, where his prophecy concerns Judah and Jerusalem, this is where he was ministering. And he says in verse 4 and following, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, they are gone away backward. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. As I say, he, he didn't hold back in his assessment of the spiritual state of the nation. The language he used there, you know, if you published that on Facebook, you would probably find the police were chasing you uh, for a hate crime for daring to identify people in such terminology. But as I say, he, he did it in chapter 1, and then in chapter 5, he also speaks in a parable form of the nation of Israel as being God's vineyard. Uh, In chapter 5 it says now will I sing to my well beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. And he's likening Israel to a vineyard placed where it has been placed and in verse 2 it says he looked that it should bring forth grapes in other words God was looking for this Uh, nation likened to a vineyard to bring forth good fruit but the verse goes on and it brought forth wild grapes and they are not nice at all they are extremely bitter and in verse 4 uh we read, "What could have been done more to my vineyard?" God is saying, "You know, what more could I have done for you? I have placed you in this position. I wanted you to be a special people for me, to be a light unto the Gentile nations surrounding you, the unbelievers. I wanted there to be good fruit, but you only brought forth wild grapes." And so, in the parable, we uh, we learn. It says. Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. It shall be eaten up. It shall be trodden down. I will lay it waste. In the parable, the owner of the vineyard is saying, you didn't bring forth good fruit. Therefore, I am going to judge you in a very drastic way. And uh, we learn in verse 7, the explanation for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of, of Israel, So uh, through this parable, uh, God moved Isaiah to set it out straight for the people of Israel. They were to be a productive uh, place for the glory of God, but they failed in that calling. And so God is going to exercise judgment upon them. And it's interesting actually that over uh, in Matthew chapter 21, uh, where the Lord himself He's renowned for the parables that he told. Uh, In verse 33 of Matthew 21, it starts off, Here another parable, there was a certain householder which planted a vineyard. And the Lord goes on to explain how the owner of the vineyard would send people to uh, get uh, the products uh, and the profits from the enterprise And the people who were tending it, they killed these messengers. Uh, And eventually it says the the owner of the vineyard will send his son. Surely they will listen to him. No, they put him to death. And of course, this was again identifying uh, the calling of the nation of Israel, but the failure of the nation of Israel. And they too would in fact be judged. So as I say, Isaiah was not shy when it came to confronting the people. And he identified, in particular, the areas where they had failed. If we go back to the parable in Isaiah chapter 5, there are a number of woes mentioned. Now, woe is simply calling down the curse of God. And Isaiah identifies uh, at least four areas where God's judgment would be quite, correct in falling upon them. Uh, in verse 8, we read this, woe unto them that join house to house that lay field to field. He's identifying their materialism. They're more interested in accumulating more property and more land. They're not interested in the glory of God. This is what their interest is. And he says, woe unto them for that. And then in verse 11, he lambasts them for their drunkenness. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflame them. Yeah, obviously there was rampant drunkenness right throughout the nation of Israel. And Isaiah is homing in on this. He's not missing and hitting the wall. And then in verse 20, he again focuses on their inverted and perverted view of morality, or in this case, actually, immorality. Verse 20, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. All moral values have been twisted and totally perverted. And so, are these people ashamed of what has been identified by Isaiah? No, verse twenty. Um, <coughs> pardon me, verse twenty-one. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes! In spite of all this, just basis for judgment, they are arrogant. They are full of themselves. This was written by Isaiah all those years ago. It could well be a commentary on the world that we are living in today. There's materialism. There is drunkenness. There are inverted views of morality. And are the people ashamed of what they're doing? No, no. They are arrogant. They are proud. They're marching through the streets, shouting, we are the people, if you like. And so Isaiah was not afraid to confront these people. He summarized them as being, in verse 24, he says, They have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. The nation then had cast aside the moral standards of God. And the same is happening in the world that you and I are living in. And in Isaiah's day, he prophesied what would be the outcome of that. In verse 25 of Isaiah 5, Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against this people. And in verse 26, The nations from from afar, they shall come with speed swiftly. Judgment was going to fall upon Judah And they would be invaded and they would be occupied by fierce people. And in many ways, the Western world is going through such experiences today. We only have to look at the spread of the ideology of Islam. It is invading Western so-called Christian nations and it is uh, gaining extreme power In those nations. And people don't realize it. But I do believe that what is happening. Is a judgment from God. Because people have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts. And despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. So Isaiah wasn't shy in confronting the sins of the nation of Israel. But although he was confronting the nation in which he resided. He was not blind to his own shortcomings. He wasn't adopting a holier-than-thou attitude in any shape or form. And in Isaiah chapter 6, we have, of course, the great vision that he had in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting upon a throne, And his train filled the temple. He had this vision of God. And he saw the angelic creatures surrounding the throne crying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And in verse 5 we see what his own personal reaction was to this revelation of the holiness of God. Then said I, woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He had confronted the nation with its sinfulness. But here, if you like, he is confronted by the reality of his own sinfulness. And he doesn't duck away from it. He doesn't shy away from it. He confronts it head on and he realizes just How sinful he himself is. So God used Isaiah to confront. But then the other side of the coin is this. That God used Isaiah to comfort his people. And I want to read just three short portions of scripture. Which show the beautiful comforting words. That God moved Isaiah to pen In chapter 40. We read this in the first two verses. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 41, And verse 10, we read these words. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And then two chapters later in Isaiah 43, the first three verses. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. Now, whilst those verses have clear application at the time and shortly thereafter to the nation of Israel, I sincerely believe that it is quite legitimate for us, as God's people, as God's redeemed people, to appropriate to ourselves the promises and the comforts that are included in those verses. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for. And uh, Paul said the Old Testament was written for our learning. And so I think that the promises that God made to his redeemed people in the Old Testament, I think it's quite legitimate for us to appropriate to ourselves those precious promises. Now, if I go to the three verses that I did read in Isaiah chapter 26. Uh, the reason that I, I wanted to speak uh, a little bit about these verses was I, I mentioned this morning, I think that, uh, or maybe it was Wednesday night, that my own ministry will be 29 years old on the 1st of September. Well, there's another 29-year stint that sort of parallels uh, those years of the ministry and that is my wife Margaret's working as a practice nurse in the carried off surgery. She first started there in March of 1990 and they they haven't been able to get rid of her so far. She's she's still there. But 29 years is quite a span of time and certainly I, I know in Margaret's case that when she first started there people that she met in those early years they have been ageing over the 29 years. And some of them who were young and sprightly when she first started to work there, well, there's not just the same spring in their step. Let's put it that way. And of course, the sad reality is that some who were there at the start of Margaret's employment there are no longer there. And Margaret has, over the years, uh, you know, they're not just patients, but they came to be friends and so on. And so she sees the reality of the passing of the years. It takes its toll. There is no doubt about that. Same with myself in Take Heed. Uh, when I first started it up, there was a, a short mailing list that then grew to a somewhat longer, uh, mailing list. Uh, but in recent years, I have had to delete certain names from the mailing list because some of the folks are now with the Lord in glory. And just in the last year, uh, both Margaret and I have felt that there has been a sort of conveyor belt of people known to us, whether through her work, whether through my ministry, or whether just through friendships and family and so on who have been confronted with some very difficult and trying circumstances. And in quite a number of cases, these would be Christians who have had to face serious health issues or serious family concerns and so on. And so they have been challenged as to how they deal with these things. As I say, the book of Isaiah, when prophecies are made, they can fall into one or more of three categories. They could be for very short term, that what was prophesied would come to happen in the short term. Or it could be that they would be midterm prophecies. Or on the other hand, they might even be long term prophecies. If if I think of mid-term prophecies, uh, I could think of the uh, virgin birth that was prophesied in Isaiah 7. And that would be uh, certainly a mid-term prophecy, if I could put it that way. And then, of course, Isaiah 53 prophesied in great detail, Calvary. And again, that would be sort of a mid-term prophecy. So I was interested to see how some commentators or books viewed Isaiah 26 verses 1 to 3. And I want to just quote two. Uh, One is a commentary on the Old Testament. It's called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Uh, It was put together a number of years ago by men who had been on the staff of Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, It was a seminary that in times past was extremely solid and sound in many areas uh, sadly, that would just not be the case nowadays. But when this commentary was written, it was reasonably sound. But they had a particular view of end times, which would be a little bit different from my own view of end times. And I think you'll see this reflected in what they say about these three verses. This is what they say. Uh, The prophet wrote a song that will be sung by the redeemed when the Messiah will establish the millennial kingdom. So you can, if you know anything about eschatology and times, they believe that there will be a literal 1,000-year reign on planet Earth by the Lord Jesus Christ. And my second view, again, it's my, my friend John MacArthur And he writes this, God has a future city of prominence, the millennial Jerusalem. So he's in the same camp as the authors of the commentary. He believes there will be a literal 1,000-year rule by the Lord at a date in the future. Uh, And even though I disagree with him on his view of end times, I still regard him as a highly helpful Bible teacher. So what is my own view about these three Verses. Well, I think it had application for the time that it was written, short term wise. But then if we get to the midterm, which I believe equates to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel age, if you like, I think it most certainly has application for that age. In other words, the age that you and I are living in. And then I think, of course, that it will have perfect application when we are in glory, that there will be this perfect peace because our view will be constantly fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I want to quote some words from C.H. Spurgeon that he wrote on this particular short portion of scripture. This is what he said. Here is a song which we are to sing in this gospel day. The theme of it is God and the city which he has built Against her the gates of hell cannot prevail. The prophet bids us open the gates. It is the gospel minister's business to seek to open the gates. Some come in by means of one doctrine and some by means of another. We are not all converted by the same agency. The prophet next describes the peaceableness of this city. Thou wilt keep him in peace, peace, as the original has it, in double peace. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. There is nothing like staying the mind on God. If you stay the mind on anything else, you cannot have perfect peace. So uh, I was glad to see that Mr. Spurgeon says that it has perfect application to the gospel age. Now, if we take verse 3, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. I want to just break it down into three short portions. The first is, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. And I find this very comforting. As a believer, Isaiah is saying that God will keep him in perfect peace. Peace. And so in this little phrase, we see God's role. Uh, very often, if there's conflict in different areas of the world and eventually things settle down and uh, normality is restored and peace prevails, very often there's a cry from people or the United Nations for peacekeeping forces to be sent in. Well, by the very name peacekeeping forces. It means that some form of peace has been established, and so it needs to be kept. Well, in the days of Isaiah, the sort of way for peace with God, which was a sort of temporary pointer to something better that would come, was through the temple sacrificial system. The Children of Israel had to go to the temple, and there were various sacrifices that could be offered, and that would obtain for them, if you like, a temporary peace with God. But those things were only a temporary pointer to a permanent solution. And of course, the permanent solution to peace with God is found in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1 and verse 20, the apostle Paul writing about Christ says, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul explains that this great gospel, this peace with God, was not just for the nation of Israel, but it also embraced the Gentiles. Uh, in the days that the Lord was here, the, the Jewish authorities, they thought we're the people of God and the relationship with God is for us exclusively. But in Ephesians 2, uh, Paul writes about Gentiles who were afar off. They had been made nigh by the blood of Christ. And uh, Paul goes on to say, for he is our peace. So he had broken down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. And the truth was that peace with God was not only for believing Jews, but was also for believing Gentiles. Uh, probably you and I don't, maybe never regarded ourselves as Gentiles, but that was the reality. Uh, unless you are a Jew who's been converted, we were Gentiles. But we have been made nigh because of the blood shed by Christ. And so he made peace. And so this keeping of the peace that Christ secured, that is God's role. Thou, God, will keep him in perfect peace. And that is very comforting. But of course, the verse goes on to say, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. So having seen God's role, we now see man's responsibility. And this is where you and I are confronted with something that we have to do. It says we must have our mind stayed on thee, steadfastly fixed on God. We must not allow our attention to waver or be distracted. We must keep our eyes fixed upon God. Uh, and uh, we must be, as uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, looking on to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. If we want to experience this perfect peace, uh, and Mr. Spurgeon pointed out <coughs> that in the original language, it is actually, thou will keep him in peace, peace. It's the same word uh, written twice to emphasize it. I think of when the Lord, when he was here, he would have said, verily, verily, truly, truly, he wants to draw your attention. Well, here, thou wilt keep him in peace, peace. This is a a perfect peace. And so that's why the word was uh, repeated. And so we must keep our eyes steadfastly fixed upon the Lord in whatever situation we find ourselves in. Uh, We think of the apostle Peter. And when he and others were out on the Sea of Galilee and they were in a little boat and a storm blew up and they were beginning to panic. And uh, the next thing they see this figure walking on the waves towards them and they realize it is the Lord. And of course Peter gets out of the boat and he starts to walk towards the Lord. And as long as he kept his gaze fixed upon the Lord. He was able to progress towards the Lord. But if you and I were doing that, probably like Peter, we would be very conscious of the waves that are roaring about us and so on. And we might take our gaze off the Lord. And as soon as he did, then he started to sink. And he had to cry out, Lord, save me. And of course, the Lord did just exactly that. And, of course, this wasn't the first time that the disciples had panicked uh, when a storm blew up in the Sea of Galilee. Back in Matthew chapter 8, they were uh, in a boat and the Lord was asleep. The storm blew up and they woke him up and said, Lord, save us, we perish. And, of course, he did. And they he was able to calm the storm. So, thou will keep him in perfect peace. That is God's role, whose mind is fixed on thee. That is man's responsibility. And then the last part of verse 3 is this. Because he trusteth in thee. Here is the reason for the perfect peace. We are confronted and we are comforted. We must trust as well as looking to the Lord we must trust. So again, he confronts us to not only look to him, but also to trust him. And the upshot is the very comforting promise that thou will keep him in perfect peace because he trusteth in thee. I wonder, have you gone through difficult times? Perhaps in recent times, Perhaps not so recent times. And you have been looking on to Jesus. But I wonder, were you looking more in hope than expectation? This verse teaches us to look with great expectation. We are not to look with a a vain hope that it may work out for the best. We are to be looking to the Lord with absolute confidence. Otherwise, the perfect peace that is promised will escape us. So whatever situations you are going through or have gone through, be looking to the Lord with sure and certain hope that he will indeed bring you through according to his will and purpose And that will give you the perfect peace that is promised. There's another uh, website that I went to just to see what they have to say about these verses. And this is what they said. The Lord Jesus Christ is the channel through whom the peace of God flows into our souls. This peace within is the possession of the Christian alone. There is no peace for anyone who does not possess Christ and who is not resting on the finished work of Christ for salvation. It is the blood of Jesus which whispers peace within. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give on to you. Not as the world gives, give I on to you. Let not your heart be troubled. So even in the darkest hour, if we know the Lord, be looking to him and he will give you perfect peace. I think of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. He was executed outside Jerusalem as Paul the Apostle, or Saul as he was in those days, was looking down onto him. And as Stephen was about to depart from this scene of time, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and lay not this sin to their charge. Well, I think that's an example of perfect peace. He was looking to the Lord even in the most dire of situations. And of course, the Lord himself he too exhibited exactly the same perfect peace as he hung on the cross. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then as the end arrived, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Stephen and the Lord both demonstrating perfect peace Because their mind was stayed on God. You and I are to become ever more Christ-like as we journey through this life as Christians. And that being the case, we should know to ever-increasing degrees the peace that is promised. Going back to Isaiah There's a lovely verse in Isaiah 41 and verse 13. And this is what God says. For I hold you by your right hand. I, the Lord your God. And I say to you, don't be afraid. I am here to help you. And just to go to the New Testament, as a benediction, let me quote Romans chapter 15 and verse 33. The Apostle Paul said this. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And may God bless his word to our hearts tonight.